Good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 112 of the Prancing Pony Podcast, where, now tonight, we're going to learn that the best place for a bonfire might not be a forest filled with conscious, ambulatory trees. Yeah, indeed. Maybe no trees at all. Certainly Mm -hmm. not old willows, at any rate. (laughs) Folks, we'll head over to the common room in just a few moments, but first, I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mart, and I'm here with the Man of the West, who I sometimes hear whispering in an unintelligible language... Alan Sisto. <laughs> well, and I might stick out a root now and then as well. Mm, so I've heard. Well, before I start feeling like we're being watched with disapproval, we've got a guest to welcome, which can only mean one thing. Today we're bringing you another new installment of The North Wing. Barlam and Butterbur had a room or two in The North Wing at the Prancing Pony Inn made special for Hobbits, and this is our place at the Prancing Pony Podcast made special for some of our listeners to give us a chance to get to know them. Absolutely. Well, rooms at the North Wing are hard to come by, so only our patrons at the Elrond's Honorarium and Kyrdan's contribution tiers are eligible. If you'd like to be one of the next patrons to join us, be sure to check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod. Please do. We've got a a waiting list for the North Wing right now, but we'll get to them all soon, and we will make room for more if necessary. Absolutely. Well then, for now, why don't we go ahead and welcome our guest to the North Wing tonight, Emily Breedlove. Hello there. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, Emily, I'm at a, a bit of an advantage here because you and I have been personal friends for many years. Um, and it's, Shh, it's... Don't tell anybody. <laughs> it's winged, I, I tell you. It's winged. Sean has friends? <laughs> oh. oh. It's, it's, it's rare. It's rare. But um, no, uh, we have known each other for uh, more years than I care to count. And it's uh, really just awesome to have you listening and supporting the podcast. So thank you so much. Um, but because of that, I'm going to let Alan ask the first getting to know you question. That's fair mm-hmm. enough. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, where are you from? What do you do? And what do your loved ones think of all this token stuff you're into? That sort of thing. Oh, where I'm from. Well, I'm kind of from all over the place. I grew up in northern New Mexico. I lived in Oklahoma for a while. We don't talk about those days. I lived I went to <laughs> high school in Connecticut. I went to conservatory. Uh, for six years, got my bachelor's and master's there in San Francisco. Uh, started on a on a kind of a opera singer's career path, and then decided it wasn't really something I was enjoying. So, messed around with some other things. I've been a writer and a proofreader, copy editor, and yoga teacher, and improviser, and I ended up in in Austin, Texas. I've been here for 14 years, just about. And uh, since I've been here, I just, I've had a career change. And uh, last summer, 2017, I earned my master's degree or master of arts in clinical mental health counseling. Wow. And uh, with expressive arts. Um, my goodness. That's- yes. That's quite a that's quite an answer. That's a mouthful of an answer right there. Both you in terms asked, of it was a long yeah, I question. did. I did. Don't ask a question you don't want to know the answer we're, to. Right? We're good at long questions. You know that we we are. Uh, and and so I'm curious to the last part of that. Like you know what uh, what do you run into with your family when it comes to this Tolkien stuff? Oh, that. <laughs> um, well, last Thanksgiving I spent with my sister and my my dad and his wife and uh, my mom. Just everybody was there, and I uh-huh. hung out uh, on with my sister, my sister's son, my nephew, and he wanted, just wanted to watch the Peter Jackson films. That's all mm-hmm. he wanted to do, just chill out and watch the movies. So I kind of bounced between cooking and hanging out with him. And 
I started talking to him about what I was what I was learning or had learned on the podcast about the Silmarillion. And my dad was sitting there. He looked at me and said, wow, you're a nerd. Uh, <laughs> he was the one who introduced me to Tolkien in the first place. I remember when I was really young, there was uh, like a leather bound book uh, that was the uh, green cover and a green kind of sheath, I guess, that you, the box that you put the book in and out of. Uh-huh. Um, it was the Hobbit and I was just fascinated by it and I was intimidated by it thinking, well, this is for older people to read. Um, so I didn't actually read the books till I was in my late twenties, but have loved them, loved the films and going, coming, going back to the books after the films and just really realize how, how much, uh, the films affect my memory of the books. And and Mm, I, I do prefer the books. Um, but the films are some of my favorites in existence. So good, good. That's awesome. Well, uh, you've actually kind of answered or partly answered my next question, which is uh, the question we always ask everybody, which is how did you first discover Tolkien's work? You've given us that. Um, the other part to that question that I usually like to ask is why do you keep coming back? What is it that keeps you interested in Tolkien's work? What, what, what makes you come back and read it again and again? Um, friends doing podcasts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Honestly, yeah, that was it. I'd never touched the Silmarillion before. And so I started listening and reading the Silmarillion. And, and that I definitely thought, I'd always heard, oh, it's so dense, you can't get through it. And I, I'm a, <laughs> I just like to say I'm a dense person. I mean, I like... <laughs> One of one of my favorite historical fiction writers is Dorothy Dunnett, and she writes dense stuff. She's really she researches the heck out of her stuff, and it's and it's pretty marvelous and and mm. and just rich as heck. And um, and I really appreciated that actually about the Silmarillion. I I got lost in it. Um, yeah, well, you can do yeah, that, can't you? It does that. Yeah. 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 Well, I suppose that probably leads us to the next question, which is, which is your favorite book in the Legendarium and why? And then after you've answered that, what's your favorite non-Legendarium Tolkien work, if you have one? Well, I have not read through the entire Legendarium. Um, I'm working my way through. Uh, I, I really love the Silmarillion, um, hmm. especially the, the longer, more epic tales. And and the, to get to get into it immediately, having music be the uh the the creator uh, essentially yes. mm-hmm. yeah uh that Tool just of creation yes yeah that just n- no pun intended resonated with me Im- immensely <laughs> oh, and oh, oh. yeah um I, I just thought it was so beautiful being being a person who feels um the artistic creative impulse is is so important in life and to to have that clearly be something that was valued in this in this mm. world mm-hmm. was is kind of uh, just makes me happy and it and it feel yeah. it feels to me that that all the art forms work together not just music we have music we have visual art there's poetry mm-hmm. um, yeah. there's yeah. drama it, it just it yeah. it feels like a complete the mythos is complete you know? yeah. yeah yeah and and that thread really does run throughout you know we talked. Uh, we had a question into Barlaman's bag. I don't remember how many episodes ago, but it was about uh, the singing in Lord of the Rings. And are they mm-hmm. really singing or, or, you know, are they just sort of reciting poetry? Oh, uh, yeah. Or is it just, is it just a, you know, like a, 
a later addition added by some scribe along the way. Um, and and I love the the conclusions we came to about yeah. you know the, these people are actually singing. Singing is oh, a yeah. part of this world. It's and a, when yeah, when heroes element, are at their yeah. yeah, and when heroes are at their most heroic, they're they're musical. They're poetic. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know the the with with Greek um, theater, they, they would sing the words. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like like the sung word uh, elevates what is being said more than anything. And mm-hmm. you and I yeah. have spoken about this before, Sean. Mm-hmm. Yep. It it takes the commonplace um, parlance into the the level of um, the divine or the transcendent. It makes it into it makes normal life into um, a ritual. It, it it enhances the ritual. It makes things just sit in a, in a more profound place in the body. Yeah, I I, I would dare say it enchants us. Yes, in, in indeed. The, the, the in literal the sense, sense of, yes. of chant. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So Emily, as you've already mentioned, you have a background as an opera singer, uh, an artist, uh, a performer, an, an improvisational performer. Um, I really have been wanting to ask you this question for a long time, and I haven't for some reason yet. But um, there's that comment of Tolkien's in the Milton Waldman letter where he talks about his work leaving scope for other minds and hands, wielding paint and music and drama. Mm-hmm. I- I'm going to ask you to pick, could you pick one story from the Legendarium that you would most like to see adapted or readapted with a, a performative aspect? It would be so interesting to see Turin. Mm-hmm. It would be so interesting because there's so that, that melodrama is yeah. so intense and there's so much there's so much in it the, the happy yeah. people are really boring to watch on stage <laughs> you're right and this has got it's got some really choice excellent roles in it and oh yeah and if you were to set it to music man mm. <sighs> you could do a really good operatic uh you know tragic uh piece with that couldn't you oh yeah, well, you really yeah i'm could. thinking like it makes me think about Salome, um, mm. which regards Strauss' set, and it is—it's just like, or or mm. Wozzeck or any of the anything that just like rips your heart out and stomps on it about five different ways, yeah. which the Turin yeah. story does. Yes, it does. Boy, how much fun would it be to to play Glaurung in that? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's got some of the best lines in that whole story. And now for a lightning round of quick questions and answers. So we're gonna, like I said, these are quick questions and answers. Uh, who's your favorite character in the Lord of the Rings? Sam. Favorite scene or favorite moment? In the Lord of the Rings? Sure. I am no woman. Mm, oh, yeah. no, I am no man. I am no man. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am no woman. <sighs> She's now late. so confused. It's late. It, it, it is, is late. late. It is late. <laughs> I am no man. <laughs> that is a great moment. Rivendell or Lorien? Mm, Lorien. Do you consider yourself a Merry or a Pippin, if you had to pick one of those? Mary. Yeah. Favorite author or book other than Tolkien? Oh, it changes, but just in general, China Miaville. Love him. Okay. All right. Well, some great answers tonight. Thank you, Emily. We really have enjoyed having you here in the North Wing. Uh, But I do think it's time for all of us to head back to the Commoner to join the rest of the listeners. Thank you again, Emily. And we'll hopefully see you back at our next questions after nightfall, if not sooner. Hope so. Yep, absolutely. And now we return you to the podcast already in progress. Well, it's always fun to welcome someone to the North Wing, but this one was really special for me because we've been friends for a long time, and I hope all of you out there enjoyed it. Indeed. 
Well, before we move on to our chapter discussion tonight, we want to thank Jordan Ellis Rennells for sponsoring this week's episode. Jordan is a musician, composer, and music teacher, and Tolkien reader. Just as we've spent a lot of time exploring and analyzing the themes of Tolkien's works, Jordan has invested time in understanding the way Howard Shore composed the scores for the Lord of the Rings films. Mm -hmm. And he's looking to take on new music students from anywhere in the world for piano, drums, guitar, or any other fretted instrument for Skype-based lessons. He's also looking for folks who are interested in studying music composition. Jordan has spent years devising his own methods and explanations in music theory and relates the technical concepts back to real life and human emotions. So if you play an instrument, or if you're interested in studying music composition with an experienced composer and music teacher, or even if you just need some sound design and scoring done for a project of your own, be sure to visit www.learntolisten.net. And be sure to let him know you heard about him here on the Prancing Pony Podcast when you reach out. That's www.learntolisten.net for Skype-based music lessons or to study music composition with Jordan Ellis Rennells. We'll be sure to put a link to his site in our show notes and social media posts. Yep. And thanks, Jordan. Now, let's take a leisurely hike through the peaceful woods of the old forest. <laughs> well, not so fast, my friend. First of all, we have a correction to make. Near the beginning of episode 107, we were talking about Frodo's reluctance to put his young friends in danger, especially Pippin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Alan, you said that Pippin was less than half Frodo's age, and I was right oh. there with you. Well, yeah. our old friend Chris B. in Illinois wrote to us to point out that this is incorrect. Of course, we know Frodo's age because his 33rd birthday was Bilbo's farewell party. That makes him 50 in this chapter, 17 years later. Right. Well, Pippin's age is less well-documented, but it is documented. Actually, in the first chapter of Book 5, Minas Tirith, when Pippin meets Burgil, son of Baragond of the Guards, he tells the incredulous lad that he's 29. Now, that takes place only a few months in the future from now, so regardless of when Pippin's birthday is and whether he's 29 already or he's 28 and has a birthday at some point in the next few months, neither one of those is less than half of 50. It was a figure of speech. I mean, when I see a guy my age with a young woman... I say she's half his age without checking her birth certificate, okay? I mean, fine, fine. I will do my penance in the chamber of failed elementary school mathematics for that one as soon as we're done with this episode. As you should. <laughs> but thanks, Chris, for bringing this to our attention so politely and so eloquently. In fact, folks, I got to tell you, Chris submitted his correction to us in this brilliant pastiche of C.S. Lewis writing style. It was that was great. amazing, yeah. But now, on with the old forest. Indeed. Well, and as usual, we're going to start near the beginning, but not actually at the very beginning. <laughs> not quite the beginning. No, not quite. We're going we're gonna to pick up right after six o'clock, and I'll start there. Soon after six o'clock, the five hobbits were ready to start. Fatty Bolger was still yawning. They stole quietly out of the house. Mary went in front, leading a laden pony, and took his way along a path that went through a spinney behind the house, and then cut across several fields. The leaves of trees were glistening and every twig was dripping. The grass was gray with cold dew. Everything was still, and faraway noises seemed near and clear. Fowls chattering in a yard, someone closing a door of a distant house. In their shed they found the ponies, sturdy little beasts of the kind loved by hobbits, not speedy, but good for a long day's work. They mounted, and soon they were riding off into the mist, which seemed to open reluctantly before them and closed forbiddingly behind them. After riding for about an hour, slowly and without talking, they saw the hedge looming suddenly ahead. It was tall and netted over with silver cobwebs. 
Okay. Now, I guess before we dive into that, we should probably at least talk about what happened before that. We just didn't want to read it all. What do yeah, you got? backtrack to the beginning of the of the chapter mm-hmm. here where yeah, yeah. Mary wakes Frodo up at 4.30 in the morning. Well, and wakes him up from that dream that we were talking about at the end of the last episode. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. That vague dream that was mm-hmm. with a white full tower. Of, and full of meaning. So much imagery. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's very, very early. In fact, Mary tells him it's half past four. Sam is already up getting breakfast ready. And I love the way he says this. Even Pippin is up. Like, he's just amazed. Even Pippin is up. <laughs> because because who would expect Pippin to be up at this Exactly. Hour? Exactly. But notice that Sam is actually working. He's getting breakfast yeah. ready. Somehow Pippin I have is, a feeling Pippin's not working. <laughs> Pippin's probably drinking a cup of coffee. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Mary's sort of the project manager, isn't he? You know, we talked he about really how he's is. kind You're of right. the planner. He's the lead. Yeah. Yeah. He's the one making sure Frodo gets up. Mm-hmm. Waking up at 4.30 in the morning is not a joy, I will tell you that. I'd be a little grumpy, I think. I don't know. You, you were, your body was on, what, it was about 5 o'clock to your That's body true. when I picked you That's up true. at Texmoot uh, the other morning. Uh, yeah. It was yeah. 7 o'clock here in Texas, but your body yeah, still I don't believe, I hadn't been there for 12 hours hardly, so no. yeah, it was still 5 o'clock to my body. And you were a yeah. delight. You were <laughs> well, absolutely a joy to, to drive well, thank next you. to for 100 miles. Oh, goodness. What a drive that was, huh? <laughs> it was fun, though. Folks, we'll eventually release that TextMoot uh, conversation, that TextMoot keynote, uh, as an episode. It may be a while because we have to slot it into our existing schedule, but uh, it was quite fun. It was great to be there, great to catch up with a lot of our listeners, and, uh, of course, to see Professor Olson again. So, wonderful time. It was a lot of fun. The, the folks at Sigma University are always so welcoming. and uh, Always. They they really made us feel like uh, made us feel like honored guests, and that was great. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, had a, had a chance to catch up with some friends, so that was great. It was. But we should probably get back to the text. Probably. Uh, I don't mind digressions, but I don't want to don't take one that's too long. Interesting, Fatty is also still asleep because Mary's like, we got to wake that sluggard Fatty. Yeah. He's squeezing in a lot of insults into that one sentence. You're right. In just four words, he manages to insult him twice. To insult his work ethic and his, his weight. Oh, goodness. But then we get to... The passage you actually read. Right, right. Sees the hobbits leaving just a little bit after six o'clock. Yeah, yeah. So uh, very interesting, evocative description of their of their departure. I yeah. love this, these very short sentences, right? Fatty Boulder mm. was still yawning. They stole quietly still out of the quietly house. quietly out of the house. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then you get the description of the path uh, that they yeah. get through the... A spinny. You want to talk to me a little bit about that? This word spinny, yeah, I actually had to look this one up. It's actually a, a small area of trees and bushes, uh, like a thicket. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that, that makes sense. I mean, context-wise, mm-hmm. I guess I probably would have guessed that. Yeah, but it's not a word that I've seen a lot. If I didn't yeah. look it up, too. Sure, yeah. Because, you know. <laughs> because that's what we do. We, that is what we do. When we don't understand words, we look them up, folks. I, I advise the same. <laughs> I mean, really, it's a good idea. It's it's a good, that's, you know, that's why dictionaries are there so that you yeah. can. And, and that's actually words. yet another advantage to the eBooks. Double click the word and pop, there goes the definition. You know, you know every once in a while, I can't get that to work. Online. Yeah, it depends. So let's look at that. Uh, let's look at the description of the atmosphere here. Yeah. The leaves of trees were glistening. Every twig was dripping. The grass was gray with cold dew. There's so much sensory information there. Mm. And then the, sen- the next sentence gives us even more. You can hear those faraway noises that they seem near because of the silence of the, of yeah. the land. Yeah. So you can hear these, these chickens talking far away and, yeah. and the door closing the closing the house. of the door. Yeah. Oh. A lot of sensory imagery there. And I really like that first sentence about the, 
the glistening leaves. Oh, I know. The twigs dripping. I mean, it's like there's a, I mean, you feel the, the mist, the moisture in the dew. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That kind of wet blanket of cloud. You know, yeah. A, yeah. It feels uh, heavy. You know, the air feels mm-hmm. heavy. It does. So I also thought it was interesting about the ponies themselves. It frankly actually sounds like they're describing the hobbits and not the hobbits' ponies. Sturdy little beasts, not speedy, but good for a long day's work. Hmm. Kind of describes most hobbits, I'd say. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, maybe not Pippin. (laughs) No, he's not good for a long day's work. That's for sure. No, no, that is for sure. But But yeah. That does make sense for the ponies. I mean, you're going to choose them for stamina. They're yeah. They're going to be going all the way to Rivendell, as far as they know, and yeah, I don't think they anticipate actually having to outrun a ring wraith. So, I'm not even that sure sense. that they have ponies that would be capable. I don't of think such that they could exactly. So you might as well go for you know for ones that that have the stamina. Right, right, absolutely. And I get the sense of hobbits probably just choose those kinds of ponies anyway. You know, workhorses, work ponies, I guess. Right, exactly, absolutely. So interesting. I thought they were a little closer to the hedge. I don't know why, but it took them an hour to get to the hedge from where they were. So they were, you know, a good couple miles at least away mm-hmm. from the hedge. Yeah. Uh, as we as we know, based on what we talked about last time regarding the speed of- In terms uh, of how fast the, ho- the, ponies, the ponies- I keep walking. saying horses, I should say ponies. That's true. Yeah. But then they get to the hedge, and I think that's where I have you picking up, huh? Yeah, I'm going to be picking up right where you left off, so. How are you going to get through this? Asked Fredegar. Follow me, said Mary, and you will see. He turned to the left, along the hedge, and soon they came to a point where it bent inwards, running along the lip of a hollow. A cutting had been made at some distance from the hedge, and went sloping gently down into the ground. It had walls of brick at the sides, which rose steadily, until suddenly they arched over and formed a tunnel that dived deep under the hedge and came out in the hollow on the other side. Here Fatty Bulger halted. Goodbye, Frodo, he said. I wish you were not going into the forest. I only hope you will not need rescuing before the day is out, but good luck to you, today and every day. If there are no worse things ahead than the old forest, I shall be lucky, said Frodo. Tell Gandalf to hurry along the east road. We shall soon be back on it and going as fast as we can. Goodbye, they cried, and rode down the slope and disappeared from Fredegar's sight into the tunnel. It was dark and damp. At the far end, it was closed by a gate of thick-set iron bars. Mary got down and unlocked the gate, and when they had all passed through, he pushed it to again. It shut with a clang, and the lock clicked. The sound was ominous. There, said Mary, you have left the Shire and are now outside and on the edge of the old forest. Maybe not a place you want to be, but it is their best option since uh, riding on the road would definitely uh, net them some trouble. Yeah. Yeah, it's what they've got. I mean, and and I love this this ominous sound as they exit. Oh, I know it? we want to go back and talk the about clang. a little bit of this, but since that's since yeah. that's fresh in my mind right now, I, I just love that. You, you you just get this sense of yeah, we're not in Kansas anymore. Yeah, and and a permanence, like a, a an inability yeah, now to go the back. The lock clicked. Yeah, there's a real sense of permanence to that. You're right. Yeah, yeah, kind of scary as it should be. I mean, that's kind yeah. of the point here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he's, he's done a very good job of setting this atmosphere. To create mm-hmm. this sense of foreboding, a sense of uh, a little bit of fear, uh, and, and yeah. it's a good thing. Yeah, Tolkien's so good at that. You know, we don't we don't talk about that often enough, but he's so good no. at writing these these scary passages, both these kind of mm-hmm. ominous, foreboding, sense of dread type passages, and really scary stuff, which we'll be seeing soon. That's true. 
And I think it's because he does it in a way that's that's very different from modern writers. He doesn't mm-hmm. rely on, you know, the jump scares. He doesn't rely on, on you know, violence necessarily to be the scary mm-hmm. thing. He, it's all psychological. It's all the yeah. environment. It's all the atmosphere and yeah. thoughts and things like that for the most part. He's, he's really good at that creeping kind of dread. Yeah, yeah. That, exactly, the creeping dread. You've got a bit, though. I think you, you pointed out that this is – more yeah, of that, this, um, this tunnel that they arrive at, this tunnel that goes under the hedge, um, you know, it's it's very clearly an archway. You know, it's it's yeah. brick walls and an arch that goes under. Uh, you know, not only is this, you know, one of our classic liminal images, you know, this sort of crossing. That's the word I was looking place. for. That's the thing. I was thinking, I, mm-hmm. I couldn't remember the exact word you used, but that's, uh, that is liminal language. Yep. Yeah, definitely. There's a there's a bit of a crossing, a threshold here. But I mm-hmm. also noticed how how much this reminded me of Mirkwood, which also had a kind oh, of tunnel yeah. leading into yeah, it. If you right. go back to the Yeah, I've got a paragraph here from the Hobbit chapter eight that, okay. that describes the passage into Mirkwood. It says the entrance to the path was like a sort of arch leading into a gloomy tunnel made mm. by two great trees that linked together, too old and strangled with ivy and hung with lichen to bear more than a few blackened leaves. Wow. So, I mean, I mean, that's, that's an arch made by trees. This is an actual, you know, yeah. brick arch, but Created, s- yeah. still you've got a really clear, um, gateway into yeah, this you forest. Really do. Yeah. Kind of a border, an, an mm-hmm. indication that you are no longer here, you were there. Right. Yeah. yeah. It is interesting. I mean, you, you kind of wonder about the creation of this. I mean, why even create an opening in the hedge? <laughs> I mean, yeah, they, so I know because most hobbits forest. won't go into it, but I mean, no, I know, I guess no. Mary has said that the brandy bucks used to go in there or yeah. they still go in there. So I guess this is just like, you know, the tunnel for eccentrics. Uh, yeah. Doesn't he say they have like a private entrance or something? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is it. I mean, if it has yeah. a lock on it, certainly that would yeah. suggest that. Um, but I, I was thinking about this. This is less of that, you know, traditional, you're thinking of an arch where you're on the ground and there's an archway. But if you read this, this is like a tunnel. It goes underneath, and then the 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 walls of brick arch over. So it's it's a it's a tunnel like underneath the, mm. the ground, uh, and then comes back up under the hedge. It's quite an engine, quite an engineering. Uh, you know, I hadn't uh, thought about it that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm just yeah. imagining an arch in the hedge. But yeah, no, it's a, a cutting that had been made, made. I think the text says at some distance from the hedge, and it went sloping gently down into the ground. Yeah, you're right. They don't have the point. walls of bricks, and then they, they arch over and form a tunnel, and then you come out in the hollow on the other side. So uh, definitely yeah. a you, big project that's, here. That's right. Yeah, wow. And done after the hedge. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, hobbits, the, they're, they're good at digging holes, aren't they? They are. That's true. <laughs> that's a good point. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, and then you get, of course, Fatty's Farewell. Uh, basically saying, you know, uh, you, this is a bad idea. You guys Frodo, are nuts but... going into the old forest. Yeah. What, do you, what is wrong with you? Yeah. But, you know, Frodo just kind of tells him like it is. I mean, that's. Yeah. Well, look, what else are we supposed to do? If, right. If this is the worst thing in front of me, great. If it's not the worst <laughs> thing in front of me, then why am I worried about this? You know? Right. Right. Exactly. That's kind of the other side of that. Of course, he doesn't realize that he's about to get, you know, shoved into a river by a tree. By a tree. <laughs> well, who would, you know? That's true. It's not the kind That's of thing not you on my when you wake up on, today. Yeah, it's yeah. it's not high on my list of fears when I leave the house in the morning. No, being that's Being shoved true. into the water by a tree. And held down by a root. Yeah, never <laughs> thought of that. No. I love the fact that we get these little hints that, you know, he, he still expects Gandalf to show up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Not not like if Gandalf shows up, tell him to hurry along the East Road. Just, just tell, tell him. him to hurry. Yeah. 
Because he's going to be here soon, I'm sure. He's totally going to be here. (laughs) Uh, And then though we didn't read it, we get uh, Mary's explanation. Well, I am going to read part of it, but we get the beginning of Mary's explanation. And he's Mm, basically saying that the the stories about goblins and wolves, those are not true. But then he says, the forest is queer. And you've got an interesting sidebar on that, don't you? I do. Yeah. Listener Logan asked us to do some word nerdery on the word queer as it's used in Tolkien. You know, it's come up a few times in the text so far, um, but it, it comes up so often in this chapter that I thought this was a good place to to go into it. Obviously, the meaning of the word has changed quite a bit over the 20th century, and the specific connotations and implications of the word really continue to change today. But Tolkien's usage of it is, of course, this an older meaning of the word, meaning simply strange or odd or peculiar. Um, it, it is a word with some obscure origins, but from what I could find in some of my usual sources, Oxford English mm-hmm. Dictionary and uh, other places online, it might actually be related to a German word quer, Q-U-E-R, oh, okay. which means crosswise or at right angles or obstructive. Hmm. And it might also be related to the English word thwart, which we usually oh. think of as a verb, you know, like to thwart yeah, something yeah. is to prevent something from happening. But it was actually originally an adjective or an adverb. Uh, something that uh-huh. was thwart your path or athwart your path was across your path. Right. So I think the the best way to make etymological sense of this word, the way Tolkien is using it, is is to think of queer as meaning strange, but with a particular connotation of, you know, sort of going against the grain or, or okay. obstructing, kind of getting in the way. That makes sense. And that's that exactly sense, what we yeah. see here in the Old Forest. And Yeah. You know. Oh, without a doubt. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it certainly fits the way, let's say, the hobbits of the Shire view the hobbits of the Marish or vice versa. That's true. Yeah. they Very against the grain. They very. go against the grain. They're eccentric. They do things differently. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. in a way that's not necessarily, you know, acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. There, There is definitely a, an element of, of judgment to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Most certainly. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pick up right after that and read more of Mary's description of what does happen in the Old Forest. Okay. So he says, Everything in it is very much more alive, more aware of what is going on, so to speak, than things are in the Shire. And the trees do not like strangers. They watch you. They're usually content merely to watch you as long as daylight lasts and don't do much. Occasionally, the most unfriendly ones may drop a branch or stick a root out or grasp at you with a long trailer. But at night, things can be most alarming, or so I am told. I have only once or twice been in here after dark, and then only near the hedge. I thought all the trees were whispering to each other, passing news and plots along in an unintelligible language. And the branches swayed and groped without any wind. They do say the trees do actually move and can surround strangers and hem them in. In fact, long ago, they attacked the hedge. They came and planted themselves right by it and leaned over it. But the hobbits came and cut down hundreds of trees made a great bonfire in the forest, and burned all the ground in a long strip east of the hedge. After that, the trees gave up the attack, but they became very unfriendly. Well, yeah. I guess so, yeah. (laughs) You cut down hundreds of me and burn them, I'm going to be pretty ticked. But they did attack the hedge. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. And that's interesting, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, we're going to have to talk about that, I think, later on, maybe, as we get into the forest itself, as to what, what not only caused them to attack the hedge, but what enabled them to do so, right? Yeah. I mean, how, how do trees attack the hedge and why? Yeah, the Hobbit's, um, you know, deforestation campaign, <laughs> you know. It, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't unprovoked. <laughs> it was not. I'm sorry, I'm getting a movie quote in my head. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It smells <laughs> like victory. 
I mean, <laughs> oh man. Yeah, just imagining the hobbits riding out to uh to Wagner playing, you know. Yeah. Oh man. Burning yeah. the trees. Yeah. Burning the trees. No, it wasn't unprovoked. Come on, the trees attacked no. first. I'm, that's right. That's right. I'm on team Hobbit with this one. Yeah. Han shot first. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The trees shot first. That's right. Um, I like this uh this boy, this this spooky bit about they're whispering to each other, passing Isn't that cool? in unintelligible oh. language. I mean, and yet audible, you can hear it. It's not, yeah. it, it's not entirely you silent. It. You can hear it. You just can't understand it. It's just, I mean, it'd be spooky enough if they were whispering in the common speech, but the fact that you can't understand what they're saying no. just makes it, just makes it even scarier. Kind of makes me think of, a little bit of when, um, when Frodo observed that there were voices in the Nazgul whale oh, and, you know, he said yeah. there were voices in, yeah. or there were words in that voice. Yeah. And that was no yeah. bird. Yeah. Not that there's an actual connection between those two. No, but just, no, no. Yeah, that, that awareness. The creepiness. That, that awareness yeah. that somebody's talking, you don't know what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes yeah. what they're saying all the more terrifying because it could right. be anything. Exactly. They're, they're obviously hostile. Yeah. And then I'm not going to read that part, but there's a very interesting thing we want to touch on in the next paragraph. Mary tells them that something makes paths, that mm -hmm. the paths seem to shift and change in, and here's the word again, in a queer fashion. So, yeah. Yeah. We want to talk a little he, about that, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Because I think it's worth, you know, we'll be seeing this as we go through this chapter that there really are more than one thing in the forest. There mm. is more than one thing in the forest that's kind of making these paths. And yeah. I think that's hinted at here by Mary. Mary says there are various queer things living deep in the forest. Right. Um, but I think, you know, that's a hint that there's more than just these strange trees there's also something else, and we're going to see what that something else is in the next chapter. Yes, we will. Well, even in the next episode, we'll see it uh, later on in this chapter. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. You're right. We I are. knew what you meant. <laughs> Our <laughs> listeners probably meant. knew what you meant, too, but yeah. <laughs> they probably did, but that is what I meant. Yeah, the next yeah. episode. Yeah. Well, why don't you go ahead and pick up a little bit uh, after they get into the old forest here. Okay. The hobbits now left the tunnel gate and rode across the wide hollow. On the far side was a faint path leading up onto the floor of the forest, a hundred yards and more beyond the hedge. But it vanished as soon as it brought them under the trees. Looking back, they could see the dark line of the hedge through the stems of trees that were already thick about them. Looking ahead, they could see only tree trunks of innumerable sizes and shapes, straight or bent, twisted, leaning, squat or slender, smooth or gnarled and branched, and all the stems were green or gray with moss and slimy, shaggy growths. Mary alone seemed fairly cheerful. You had better lead on and find that path, Frodo said to him. Don't let us lose one another, or forget which way the hedge lies. That's good advice. That is good advice. And you know it would be helpful for not losing one another? Yeah, yeah. Some rope. That's exactly what Come I'm on, thinking. Come on, Sam, why didn't you bring some rope? <laughs> You're supposed to be helpful. You're supposed to be this, you know, knowledgeable you guy. I know, right? You think he figured it out here that he needed some rope or you think it, it wasn't until later? Uh, I think, you know what? He doesn't mention it certainly until later. No. And I think he yeah. kind of remembers it. Well, I think we see him remember it later, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, this would have been a hint. This would have been a handy time to have it. You're right. <laughs> it would. So the description of these tree trunks. Oh, my goodness. They're not pretty. Look at all those words. Yeah. I know. Straight, bent, twisted, gnarled, green, gray, shaggy growths. I love it. Slimy. Ugh. 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 Yeah. These are ancient, 
Yeah. Just these aren't the trees in Lorien. Right. No. Right. No, these are these are not attractive trees. Right. They're definitely intimidating and uh, unpleasant. But yeah. but Mary seems to be perfectly fine. How, yeah, how is well, that remember, possible? He's, well, he's the one who's been here before. That's you know? true. That's true. He's he's yeah. got more experience with this forest than they do. Yeah. But it does get even more tense. In fact, I'm going to pick up a little after that uh, and read through. Uh, well, you'll see where I read through. All <laughs> right. <laughs> so, as they went forward, it seemed that the trees became taller, darker, and thicker. There was no sound except an occasional drip of moisture falling through the still leaves. For the moment, there was no whispering or movement among the branches, but they all got an uncomfortable feeling that they were being watched with disapproval, deepening to dislike and even enmity. The feeling steadily grew until they found themselves looking up quickly or glancing back over their shoulders as if they expected a sudden blow. There was not as yet any sign of a path, and the trees seemed constantly to bar their way. Pippin suddenly felt that he could not bear it any longer, and without warning let out a shout. Oi! Oi! he cried. I'm not going to do anything. Just let me pass through, will you? The others halted startled, but the cry fell as if muffled by a heavy curtain. There was no echo or answer, though the wood seemed to become more crowded and more watchful than before. I should not shout if I were you, said Mary. It does more harm than good. Ooh, oh my. Man, that is foreboding. Isn't it? I mean, it, it just the incredibly tense atmosphere it must have taken mm -hmm. for Pippin to get to the point where he felt he had to say something. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Just the oppressive nature of this. Oppressive is a good word for it. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. it just, it just feels like a stifling space, you know? Yeah. You've got, you got no room to breathe almost. And intimidating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, you see how good Tolkien is at writing these, these passages that are just filled with this kind of creeping yeah. dread, you know? Just a building tension. Yeah. Mm hmm yeah. My goodness. Well, I was just going to point out, you, you mentioned Pippin's just kind of shouting to, to, to nobody yeah. in particular. Yeah. But Mary's, Mary's response, I mean, he seems perfectly at peace with the idea that the trees are able to hear Pippin shouting. You know, it's just yeah. like, hey, don't shout. That makes it worse. Right, um, right, exactly. And it does remind us that, you know, he is familiar with this place, as we were just saying. It's, um, it's a little bit like uh, like uh, Michael Drought's epistemic regime, you know. You oh, yeah, we talked about that in the... Different yeah. characters know more than others, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. You're right. Uh, and we see it in this case through the perception of, of Pippin, who knows the mm -hmm. least. Right, yeah. yeah. So they do end up getting to the bonfire glade. We're not going to read that passage, but they do get there. Actually, we'll read the next passage, though, when they arrive. And that's where I'm going to have you pick up because we've got some wonderful landscape descriptions here, don't yeah, we? Yeah, there's some pretty cool stuff here. The light grew clearer as they went forward. Suddenly, they came out of the trees and found themselves in a wide circular space. There was sky above them, blue and clear to their surprise, for down under the forest roof they had not been able to see the rising morning and the lifting of the mist. The sun was not, however, high enough yet to shine down into the clearing, though its light was on the treetops. The leaves were all thicker and greener about the edges of the glade, enclosing it with an almost solid wall. No tree grew there, only rough grass and many tall plants, stocky and faded hemlocks and wood parsley, fireweed seeding into fluffy ashes, and rampant nettles and thistles. A dreary place but it seemed a charming and cheerful garden after the close forest. Mm. The hobbits felt encouraged, 
and looked up hopefully at the broadening daylight in the sky. At the far side of the glade, there was a break in the wall of trees and a clear path beyond it. They could see it running on into the wood, wide in places and open above, though every now and again the trees drew in and overshadowed it with their dark boughs. Up this path they rode. They were still climbing gently, but they now went much quicker and with better heart, for it seemed to them that the forest had relented and was going to let them pass unhindered after all. Boy, that, that, that idea that the forest itself has, you know, that much sentience and awareness. Yeah. That uh, the forest ability. actually has a will and has intentions towards you. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily good ones, yeah. No, no, definitely not necessarily good ones. Yeah. I, I, I love the description of these plants. Yeah. Though I have to say, when I heard fireweed seeding into fluffy ashes, it, we had just watched uh, Despicable Me, so all I could hear was a little girl going, It's so fluffy! <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure she was talking about a unicorn, though, and not fireweed. I just Probably not fireweed she was thinking of. Probably no. not. Probably not. Well, and I only know that because I actually looked up some of these plants in, you uh, did, in huh? Flora yeah. of Middle Earth. Yeah, by yeah. Walter The Brand book you Red. have that I don't, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. There's there's a lot of cool stuff in there, good reference. Yeah, yeah. And um, the, the authors of that book point out that this is the only time that two of these plants are mentioned in the entire legendarium. Uh, fireweed, which is Camarion angustifolium. If you um, say so. <laughs> I, and I, I hope I'm pronouncing that somewhat right. I hope um, you are too. Is a weedy plant that is actually very beautiful, they say, and typically grows in disturbed and previously burned woodland clearings. So that explains, oh. you know, oh, seeding yeah, into yeah. fluffy ashes. Certainly. Um, and, you know, the bonfire glade would seem to be an appropriate place for it. Right. Um, and then this wood parsley is the other one that's never mentioned anywhere else in the legendarium. Wood parsley, they believe, is Anthracus sylvestris, which is more commonly known as cow parsley. Now, that's hmm. not to be confused with giant cow parsley or giant hogweed, which if hmm. you're a fan of Peter Gabriel's Genesis work, you know is invincible and seems immune to all our herbicidal battering. Well, that that may be our most obscure music reference yet, <laughs> really. The two people in the world who might get that may not listen to our show. I try. So, I There's a couple out there that I'm sure will get it, but I... Yeah, I, yeah, maybe. I'm trying. Wow, Every once is, in a while, I got a lob. I got a lob an obscure one out there. Yeah, that's really obscure. That that's <laughs> on the on the one to ten chart of obscurity. That one goes to eleven. <laughs> <laughs> Very um, well done. <laughs> Very now, well done. The, the judges point out that the wood parsley, if it is Anthracus sylvestris, is very similar to and often confused with the third plant listed here, which is hemlock. Now, of course, that does appear elsewhere in the legendarium in the story of Baron and Luthien. That's right. Baron first found Luthien dancing under the hemlocks in a clearing in the forest of Neldoreth, a scene that was directly inspired by Tolkien's own life as he related to his son Christopher in letter number 340. And you can see episode 31 way back in season one for this story in more detail. So he says to Christopher, it was first conceived in a... Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, but <laughs> I'm picturing right. him... If, if we just changed a couple of words here... You were first conceived in a small woodland glade <laughs> filled with hemlocks. <laughs> ah, oh, like, Christopher. No, Dad, I don't want to no, know. Dad, I don't want to know. Stop. Dude, I don't want to know. Her, her eyes were bright, man. She could sing. No. And no, dance. stop. Stop, Dad. Stop. <laughs> I don't want to oh, know. Goodness. No, no. Um, I'm going to read the quote as is and not I took the... pictures, son. Look. No. <laughs> Oh, that's terrible. 
quite possibly criminal. I, I just don't want. All right. Now let's Dad, be. You know, no. It's funny. I, that probably, I don't know. That was bad. I probably crossed a line there. All right. So um, Professor Tolkien relays to, to Christopher. It was first conceived, it being the legend of Baron and Luthien and the, the tale. The story, of, yes. Right, the story, not Christopher. It was first <laughs> no. conceived in a small woodland glade filled with hemlocks at Ruse in Yorkshire where I was for a brief time in command of an outpost of the Humber Garrison in 1917, and she was able to live with me for a while. In those days, her hair was raven, her skin clear, her eyes brighter than you have seen them, and she could sing and dance. That's right. That's yeah, right. And who that can is forget? lovely. Despite my terribly tasteless humor, that really is beautiful. Oh, our terribly tasteless humor. Wow. We were both right there. I just dragged you along. <laughs> I'm blaming you. Do. You're a bad influence. I've corrupted you, sir. You are the Melkor to my Sauron next time. Um, <laughs> you know, you uh, what's interesting about that story is that, uh, according to the Judds, uh, hemlocks don't actually smell that great. Oh, wow. And, and it could be because of this that actually some Tolkien authorities believe that it wasn't actually hemlocks or conium maculatum that hmm. Edith danced under at Ruse, but actually the very similar-looking Anthrica sylvestris, which is called wood parsley here in this chapter. Huh. Um, but the Judds actually say that, well, since there's there are hemlocks and wood parsley side by side here in the bonfire glade, and Tolkien yeah. is referring to both of them distinctly, right. Tolkien must have known what he was doing by making a distinction between them. True. And so they they figure that, you know, regardless of what may actually have been growing in Ruse in 1917, we need to infer that Luthien was actually dancing among true hemlocks. One last thing, we should point out that none of these parsleys are similar to the kind you buy at the supermarket. That is a different species <laughs> altogether and doesn't appear here in the old forest. It just gets served in restaurants on the side of your, your plate and you don't eat it. But, and you um, don't eat it, it. It does grow in Athelion. That's right. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it does. We'll get there in, you know, about four years. Yeah. Yeah. And we still <laughs> won't be eating our parsley. No, probably not. But yeah, um, so it's, I think one one thing, the thing that was the most striking to me about the the reading from the Judds is that, you know, the fireweed especially is actually kind of a pretty plant, you know, with purplish yeah, flowers. Yeah. So I think there's something there that Some helps beauty. explain why it's kind of a relief to them. You know, even though it's a dreary place, it is a relief after the claustrophobic Well, anything is nice again. after that closed forest. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. But, but still, these flowers would actually be nice to look at. I would. Yeah. 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 I'm not saying I want to go to the bonfire glade or anything, but well, they no. seem quite pretty. <laughs> the next moot will be at the bonfire glade. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how many people will show up. Probably not too many. No, no. And the ones that do might end up, you know, ca caught by old man Willow down the way. But um, yeah, this is this is a really interesting little location. Blue, clear sky, but still early enough that you can't get sun in the clearing. That's interesting. So mm, we're still yeah. very early in the morning. Yeah, that's true. Um, so they're they're not too far away, really, from the hedge. They can't be. Yeah. I think it's interesting that they see this path so clearly. It's almost as though it's a ruse. And I don't mean R-O-O-S where Edith was dancing. <laughs> where Edith I danced mean, for ruse, talking. like a trick. You know, this is uh, the, the trees are luring them forward into a place that, that they think uh, is safe, that they think will go uh, up, uh, you know, up and over, oh, yeah. uh, you know, further on. But That's a good uh, catch. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So I, think, I, think, I think that's exactly what's going on because we're going to see how, you know, how well they, mm -hmm. they just get steered right to where the trees are trying to take them. Yeah. So, yeah, the trees here are, are really clearly hostile, as we've seen. And that makes me think of something that I found in the letters. 
apparently there was a newspaper article uh, written about forestry, and it contained this line. Sheep walks where you could once ramble for miles are transformed into a kind of Tolkien gloom where no bird mm. sings. <laughs> Charming. Uh, not yeah. surprisingly, the professor did not remain silent. Uh, his letter to the paper was published less than a week later, so he obviously got on it right away. Um, <laughs> it, and it's that letter, which we have as number 339, uh, that, that brought this to my attention. In that letter, he explains that while Lothlorien is beautiful because there the trees were loved, he goes on to point out that elsewhere, forests are represented as awakening to consciousness of themselves. The old forest was hostile to two-legged creatures because of the memory of many injuries. Now, this isn't justification, of course. In letter 212, he says that trees may go bad as in the old mm-hmm. forest. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and this, that's a really good, uh, really good find in the letters. And because this uh, memory of many injuries, mm-hmm. uh, I remember reading ahead a little bit, and uh, Tom Bombadil talks a little bit about this in yeah. the actual next chapter, not the next episode. Yes, not <laughs> like just the next episode, earlier, right. But the next <laughs> chapter, yeah. Uh-huh. He, he talks he a little bit about, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pick up right after that, and we're going to get Frodo's, um, well, rather unfortunate song. So, <laughs> now stronger than ever, they felt again the ill will of the wood pressing on them. So silent was it that the fall of their ponies' hoofs, rustling on dead leaves and occasionally stumbling on hidden roots, seemed to thud in their ears. Frodo tried to sing a song to encourage them, but his voice sank to a murmur. O wanderers in the shadowed land, despair not, for though dark they stand, all woods there be must end at last, and see the open sun go past. The setting sun, the rising sun, the day's end or the day begun, for east or west all woods must fail. Fail. Even as he said the word, his voice faded into silence. The air seemed heavy, and the making of words wearisome. Just behind them, a large branch fell from an old overhanging tree with a crash into the path. The trees seemed to close in before them. They do not like all that about ending and failing, said Mary. I should not sing any more at present. Wait till we do get to the edge, and then we'll turn and give them a rousing chorus. He spoke cheerfully, and if he felt any great anxiety, he did not show it. The others did not answer. They were depressed. A heavy weight was settling steadily on Frodo's heart, and he regretted now with every step forward that he had ever thought of challenging the menace of the trees. Mm. Wow. Well, poor Frodo. I mean, yeah. all he's trying to do is sing a song just to kind of lift their spirits up a little bit. Yeah. But... And he, he chooses the wrong one, obviously. <laughs> I've done that in the car before. I've put on the wrong playlist with my kids, and then suddenly— you know, this is like if you're, get, if you're listening to a Pandora playlist and this song comes up, you just got to hit thumbs down. Just get yeah. to the next one. Yeah. Every once in a while, like, oh, I, I forgot this song was on this mix. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Don't want my kids to hear that one. Yeah. But uh, I'm sure it felt like a good idea at the time, you know? Well, yeah, clearly. But, um, but boy, what a, what a description this is. The making of words wearisome. Hmm. I'm yeah. sure there are some who wish that would happen to us, that, we, that maybe it would just be a little harder for us to make so many darn words. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's probably, that's going to show up in our next iTunes review, I'm sure. Probably. <laughs> if only the making of words were words wearisome. Words will be wearisome for them. Yeah. This is, this is an intense moment. The trees are like, mm-hmm. y- y- what did you just say? <laughs> what was that? You talking to Those me? Are- 
Are you Those talking are to me? Words. Right, right. <laughs> Those are fighting words, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Mary, once again, you know, he he knows, he, mm-hmm. he gets it. He's like, uh, the trees don't like this. He's he's again perfectly comfortable with the idea that the trees are listening to them. Yeah, and that the trees yeah. have a reaction, and the trees have a reaction, <laughs> and it's an and that the one. trees would uh, would would you know be able to hear it when they thumb their noses at them after they finally get to the edge yes. and turn and give them a rousing chorus. <laughs> I love that. That's great stuff. But yeah, poor poor Frodo, the burden that he's already carrying, and here he is just a, a few miles away from home, already regretting that he'd ever thought of going into the old forest. Mm-hmm. Well, they do end up getting to a um, uh, towards a green hilltop. They see it, uh, and the path seems to be heading there, and that's where I'm going to have you pick up next. Okay. They now hurried forward again, delighted with the thought of climbing out for a while above the roof of the forest. The path dipped, and then again began to climb upwards, leading them at last to the foot of the steep hillside. There it left the trees and faded into the turf. The wood stood all round the hill, like thick hair that ended sharply in a circle round a shaven crown. The hobbits led their ponies up, winding round and round until they reached the top. There they stood and gazed about them. The air was gleaming and sunlit but hazy, and they could not see to any great distance. Near at hand, the mist was now almost gone, though here and there it lay in hollows of the wood, and to the south of them, out of a deep fold cutting right across the forest, the fog still rose like steam or wisps of white smoke. That, said Mary, pointing with his hand, that is the line of the Withywindle. It comes down out of the downs and flows southwest through the midst of the forest to join the Brandywine below Hazend. We don't want to go that way. The Withywindle Valley is said to be the queerest part of the whole wood, the center from which all the queerness comes, as it were. Hmm. That's a little foreboding. We don't want to go there. Hint, hint, Quite. wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> and that's exactly where you're going to end up going. Yeah. In a world. Where you say in advance where you don't want to go, but you go there anyway. Anyway. Four hobbits are led inexorably towards the wording. The wording inexorably would never be. In I was going to say, the movie trader guy never says inexorably. It's never says inexorably. I say inexorably. Well, yeah. You do. <laughs> That's why I don't do movie the, trailers. There you go. In a world. So you get. Anyway. Um, <laughs> You've got a little word nerdery for us on Withywindle. Or is it Withywindle or Withywindle? Is it voice? I say I, I say Withywindle. Uh, That's what I thought I'm, too, I'm, but I must have heard yeah. somebody say it the other way. I don't know. Uh, it's I, I th- it's subtle. It, maybe yeah. if somebody if somebody knows it's supposed to be Withy with a really yeah. soft I've always CH. I've always done it voiced, you know, just Withy. Yeah, the, withy that's, Wendell. Yeah. That's how I do it. Yeah, it just sounds right that way. It does, absolutely. It sounds almost onomatopoeic that way. Withywindle. Yes, it does. You're right. But uh, it's not onomatopoeic. Actually, Tolkien no. explains it in the nomenclature as meaning a winding river bordered by willows or withies. There you uh, go. Withy is actually a word for willow. And Tolkien says it's not uncommon in English place names. But Windle does not actually occur. Uh, he says Withy Windle was modeled on Withywind, a name of the convolvulus or bindweed. Okay, bindweed. Now, that's a, that's a genus of flowering plants growing on vines or or on vines, which are climbing vines, right? Uh, or shrubs. Uh, morning glory is actually part of that family. That's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Ring of Words actually goes a little bit further into this and explains that the element withy does mean willow, 
but its oldest meaning in English is a band, a tie, or shackle consisting of a tough, flexible twig or branch, as of willow or osier. As Tolkien implies, withywindle does not occur as an English word, but a verb windle does exist, meaning, among other things, to move sinuously, to meander. Hmm. Oh, on wow. The basis, okay. yeah. I know. So on the basis of a real word, this is going back to Ring of Words, uh, on the basis of a real word, which is withywind, the name of a winding plant that strangles and smothers other plants, Tolkien has created a name for the Old Forest River with elements that exactly fit its character, willow and wine sinuously. Wow. It may also have been influenced by an Old Norse word, vidvindel, which literally means ivy. Oh my goodness. Isn't that Which, which cool? must be related to that real word about the plant that strangles and smothers other plants. That yeah, sounds, yeah, withywind, yeah. Because mm -hmm. ivy certainly does that. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that yeah. is that is amazing. And how it's just Isn't a single cool? place name and he does that much uh, in terms of tying it yeah. in. Wow. Yeah, and it's it's sort of this this multilingual wordplay, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pull, you know, pulling in this old Norse word and the English word and the the meanings of these two parts of, of the English wow. word. It's 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 incredible. That, that, yeah. That's pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. But not a place you want to go. No, definitely not. Not in this particular case because it is where all the queerness comes from, as uh, as Mary says. Mm -hmm. uh, now it's nearing midday, so we know it's you know at least a couple hours later. Uh, it's about eleven o'clock. It says. So they can't see the hedge to the west. They're far enough in now that, they, that they're beyond being able to see the, the hedge. And, of course, they're still so far south that they can't see the road to the north. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, they can see the downs, can't they? Yeah, I'm, they I'm can. Read, I'm going to read that paragraph and we'll tackle right. that. On the southeastern side, the ground fell very steeply, as if the slopes of the hill were continued far down under the trees, like island shores that really are the sides of a mountain rising out of deep waters. They sat on the green edge and looked out over the woods below them while they ate their midday meal. As the sun rose and passed noon, they glimpsed far off in the east the gray-green lines of the downs that lay beyond the old forest on that side. That cheered them greatly, for it was good to see a sight of anything beyond the woods' borders. Though they did not mean to go that way if they could help it, the Barrow Downs had as sinister a reputation in Hobbit legend as the forest itself, which apparently is more foreshadowing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's yeah. almost like, you know, frying pan fire, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It really is. You're right. If, if we were to get out of the old forest, well, that way there's the Barrow Downs. That's just yeah, as bad. Don't want to go there. Yeah. yeah. Right. Maybe even, maybe even worse. Well, here at least we just know it's equally bad as sinister right. a reputation. As yeah. sinister. Yeah. You know, interestingly, Hammond and Skull point to a, um, a, an observation by Tom Shippey that he makes in Author of the Century that Tolkien himself would, of course, been very familiar with these sorts of downs. Uh, he says, Barely 15 miles from Tolkien's study, the Berkshire Downs rise from the Oxfordshire Plain, thickly studded with Stone Age mounds, among them the famous Wayland Smithy, from which a track leads to Nine Barrows Down. So, certainly oh, wow. just cool. not very far away, he would have been seeing these sorts of... Uh, of yeah, characteristics these, in the land. These sort of mounds, yeah. Yeah. And we will be seeing those things up close and personal in a few chapters. Yeah, just a little bit too close. Now. Yeah, agree. Yeah. yeah. Get closer. Too close. Too close. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, the day may come when I will stop making a lot of movie references, but it is not this day. But it is not this day. <laughs> so. Nope. Uh, so they, interestingly, they go ahead and, and leave the this hilltop uh, and they they realize that the path is not going the direction they thought it would. They had hoped that they mm. were going to get 
uh, to the north because the path certainly started there, but it kept winding around and they realized they were heading towards the Withywindle. Uh, so they, they head off road uh, and think that that's where they're going to, uh, uh, to make way to the, to the great east-west road. But what happens, Sean? And that doesn't seem up? to be a good idea. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Don't leave the path. Don't leave the path. At first, their choice seemed to be good. They got along at a fair speed, though whenever they got a glimpse of the sun in an open glade, they seemed unaccountably to have veered eastwards. But after a time, the trees began to close in again, just where they had appeared from a distance to be thinner and less tangled. Then deep folds in the ground were discovered unexpectedly, like the ruts of great giant wheels, or wide moats and sunken roads long disused and choked with brambles. These lay usually right across their line of march, and could only be crossed by scrambling down and out again, which was troublesome and difficult with their ponies. Each time they climbed down, they found the hollow filled with thick bushes and matted undergrowth, which somehow would not yield to the left, but only gave way when they turned to the right, and they had to go some distance along the bottom before they could find a way up the further bank. Each time they clambered out, the trees seemed deeper and darker, and always to the left and upwards it was most difficult to find a way and they were forced to the right and downwards. Boy, that's just, that's just scary stuff right there. I mean, the, the is, trees yeah. are manipulating their path without even making a path now. Yeah, yeah. And, and they can't even, they can't even really figure out that it's going on while it's going no. on. It, it, it's no. sort of, it's in hindsight that they realize, oh man. You know what it reminds me of? I know, I know you haven't seen Doctor Who, so I'm going to lob this no. at you, just like you occasionally lob the Star Trek references at me. Uh, there's a, <laughs> Fair enough. There's a particular monster in Doctor Who, and a few episodes of Doctor Who called the Weeping Angels, and they're these, uh -huh. they're aliens that look like statues of angels, just you know, stone angel statues. And right. normally, you know, they look graceful and pretty, like angel statues would. But then, when you turn your back on them, they move oh. and attack. But they only move when you're not looking. Oh, so you'll get terrifying. I know. So you'll it, it's some of the scariest stuff that show ever did. So you'll get characters turn their back on these statues, and then when they look again, the statue has like a scary face, and it's about to jump on you. And it's what? <laughs> I'm kind of reminded of that with this because it's just like yeah, yeah. I you can know, see why you don't see it. You don't see the trees moving, but no, but they are, and they're, they're clearly moving. They're they're just moving steering. further ahead. They mm -hmm. they they're moving so that yeah. the the hobbits don't see it happening. Ooh. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. just creepy. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to pick up right where you left off, uh, and, and we'll see what happens here. After an hour or two, they had lost all clear sense of direction, though they knew well enough that they had long ceased to go northward at all. They were being headed off and were simply following a course chosen for them, eastwards and southwards, into the heart of the forest and not out of it. The afternoon was wearing away when they scrambled and stumbled into a fold that was wider and deeper than any they had yet met. It was so steep and overhung that it proved impossible to climb out of it again, either forwards or backwards, without leaving their ponies and their baggage behind. All they could do was to follow the fold downwards. The ground grew soft and in places boggy. Springs appeared in the banks, and soon they found themselves following a brook that trickled, babbled through a weedy bed. Then the ground began to fall rapidly, and the brook, growing strong and noisy, flowed and leaped swiftly downhill. They were in a deep, dim-lit gully overarched by trees high above them. After stumbling along for some way along the stream, 
they came quite suddenly out of the gloom, as if through a gate they saw the sunlight before them. Coming to the opening, they found that they had made their way down through a cleft in a high steep bank, almost a cliff. At its feet was a wide space of grass and reeds, and in the distance could be glimpsed another bank, almost as steep. A golden afternoon of late sunshine lay warm and drowsy upon the hidden land between. In the midst of it, there wound lazily a dark river of brown water, bordered with ancient willows, arched over with willows, blocked with fallen willows, and flecked with thousands of faded willow leaves. The air was thick with them, fluttering yellow from the branches, for there was a warm and gentle breeze blowing softly in the valley, and the reeds were rustling and the willow boughs were creaking. Wow. You know, th this description, if this is where you pick up and you haven't read any part of the, the chapter up until this point, it's pretty. It's yeah. beautiful. The golden afternoon, the space of grass and reeds, the lazy river, all the gorgeous willows. <laughs> but, yeah. But. Yeah. Yeah. But what a moment. I mean, this is really pretty. I mean, I can see this scene in my head and, Oh, man, that's beautiful. It really is. I mean, there are a few things that aren't as pretty. There's, you know, these boggy places. There's well, this no, weedy that's bit. Well, no, that's true. I'm at the part when they, when, they, when they get out through the cleft in the high you're, you're at the end. You're at the end part of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As if through a gate. They it's kind of like an improvement it. on the earlier. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But you're right about the willows. I mean, all these different. Oh, must be beautiful. All this willow variety. Mm -hmm. Ancient willows, fallen willows, faded willow leaves. Yeah. Willow <laughs> They're everywhere. Yep. What a moment. But yeah, uh, prior to that, of course, you know, just this idea that they're, they're losing the sense of direction. They're, they're following a course and not making mm -hmm. their way in, mm -hmm. in the sort of passive versus active thing. And it, it reminds me of what we talked about not too many episodes ago about you never know where you'll be swept off to when we mm. talk about stepping into the yeah. road and why that was so important versus onto. Yeah. 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 yeah, the idea that you just kind of get you get kind of lost in this road. You're 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 in something. You're surrounded by something. Exactly. You're not it, on something. It takes yeah. you somewhere, whether mm -hmm. you want to go there or not. Whether you want to go there go or where not, it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, this idea of losing all sense of direction actually reminds me of uh, again something else from Tom Shippey. You mentioned something from one of his books recently. This is actually right. from an article that he wrote in 2012, which was actually an edited version of a talk that he gave back in 2002. Wow. And the title of the article was Trees, Chainsaws, and Visions of Paradise. And in it, he says something really interesting about forests. He says, mm -hmm. the literary functions of the wood are then, first of all, to get lost in, and second, to find your way out of. Huh. This makes sense literally, for the main thing about a wood is that you can't see very far. In particular, you can't see the sky, and so you readily lose your bearings, as indeed happens to the hobbits as they make mm -hmm. their way through the old forest. True. But losing your bearings very easily has allegorical meaning, error, moral as well as physical blindness, a sense mm. of despair. Wow. Yeah. So that's kind of what's going on here from sort of a literary symbolism perspective. You know, they, they are lost. They are, they are adrift. They are sort of um, mm -hmm. kind of powerless. You know, you talk about passive versus active. They're kind of powerless here. They don't yeah. really have a lot of agency. No, um, you're right. And I, and I do want to give a, a hat tip to one of our listeners, uh, Luke Shelton of the, the Tolkien mm. Experience Project. Yeah, yeah. Um, he actually put this article in my head recently when he, uh, he mentioned <laughs> this quote not long ago in a Facebook group, and that's what reminded oh, yeah. me of it. So, well, yeah. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Luke.
Okay, well, we're not going to read this next little bit, but uh, we find that that Mary, of course, recognizes this as the Withywindle, uh, and then mm-hmm. he finds he finds a footpath, and he realizes, hey, if we turn left and go down that, we're gonna we're gonna end up outside of the forest. But Pippin mm-hmm. has a thought on that, doesn't he? <laughs> Pippin isn't really <laughs> he has too a trusting on a lot just of things. Yet. Yeah, he does. He's not he's not quite on board with the let's follow the mysterious path <laughs> in the dark, evil forest. Yeah, yeah, right. Who made the track? Do you suppose, and why? I am sure it was not for our benefit. I am getting very suspicious of this forest and everything in it, and I begin to believe all the stories about it. And have you any idea how far eastward we should have to go? No, said Mary. I haven't. I don't know in the least how far down the withy window we are, or who could possibly come here often enough to make a path along it. But there is no other way out that I can see or think of. There being nothing else for it, they filed out and Mary led them to the path that he had discovered. Everywhere the reeds and grasses were lush and tall, in places far above their heads, but once found, the path was easy to follow. As it turned and twisted, picking out the sounder ground among the bogs and pools. Here and there it passed over other rills, running down gullies into the withywindle out of the higher forest lands, and at these points there were tree trunks, or bundles of brushwood laid carefully across. And that's pretty different from the other paths, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is. This kind of comes back to what we talked about before about the, the multiple forces mm-hmm. at work here. Yep. Some so, of these paths are made by the trees, by the mm-hmm. evil force. Some of these yep. paths seem to be made by somebody else. That is correct. But who that other person is, we're going to have to wait a week because that wraps it up for tonight's discussion. But join us again next week as the hobbits wind their way towards inevitable willowy doom. Not to mention that oddball with the yellow boots. (laughs) He is an enigma, that Tom. True. Well, before we get to Barlaman's bag, we want to give you a brief reminder about the fellowship of the podcast. If you've been listening lately, you've heard us telling you that we're getting closer to our next goal of setting up a Discord server. Yeah. Well, it turns out our listeners really can't get enough of our private humiliation, and we (laughs) should have that set up by the time this airs. Yes, we should. But to keep our embarrassment amongst friends... That Discord server is limited to our patrons at the Gift of Gondor level or higher. So do you want to listen in live during an episode recording? Well, be sure to visit patreon.com slash prancingponypod. You'll also get all sorts of other goodies like access to exclusive content and some PPP swag. Ah, delightful swag. Ah, swag. And what wouldn't we do for swag, you know? I know, There's, seriously. I, I will do a lot of things for swag, but anyway. Yep, yep. If you're looking for a new Tolkien book. Don't give me a list. I don't want to know. (laughs) I will not because (laughs) certainly not with a microphone running. Um, (laughs) Yeah, good idea. (laughs) But if you're looking for a new Tolkien book, check out the official library pages at our website, theprancingponypodcast.com, where we've put together a set of links for our listeners to all the books we've ever mentioned on the show, Tolkien or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And if you wouldn't mind posting a review on iTunes, we'd really be grateful for that. That increases our visibility. That means more new listeners, more great questions for Barlamin, more discussion on social media, and a more vibrant Tolkien community. Yep. And it's also helpful if you share us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, wherever there are Tolkien fans. Now, with all that done, let's uh, take a look and see what old Barlamin has in the mailbag for us. Sean? Well, for starters, we got a lot of feedback from listeners on my disbelief that Farmer Maggot's wife would call him by his last name. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we got a lot of feedback. We got responses from way too many listeners to name them all here, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, everywhere. Email, Facebook, yeah. everywhere. 
everywhere. But, you know, we did hear some common themes ranging from, well, basically, what are you, nuts? People call each other by their last names all the time. Uh, they gave yeah, us the reminder yeah, yeah. That, that we already knew that Tolkien's friends called him Tollers. But they also suggested some of the responses that married couples call each other by their birth surnames as a joke sometimes. Uh, more than one person pointed us to the television series The Office, in which the character Jim calls his wife Pam by her maiden name Beasley. Now, apparently this is more common in the UK than you think, which was interesting. Yeah, and I feel like I need to explain myself. Yes, I have been called by my last name by male friends in the past, especially right. when I was younger. Right. Um, so I, I do know that's a thing. I just I just haven't seen it <laughs> among married couples that much. Yeah, I mean, not at all ma- for me. But... Maybe I've called my wife by her maiden name jokingly from time to time, but not enough that I really remember it being a thing. No. And I guess I just didn't really see anything here to mark that this was, you know, a joke from Maggot's wife. So right, I, right. I think that's kind of what threw me off a little bit. You know, several of the responses, I love this, uh, referred to mm-hmm. Jane Austen in some way. Yeah. Uh, reminding yeah. us of the fact that, you know, in this broadly 19th century style social conventions of the Shire, mm-hmm. it was just more expected to call people by their last names in public. Ah, we got a, true, true. Got a lot of messages on that front. But my personal favorite response has to be the one I got from Michelle L. in Indiana. She pointed to Jane Austen, and she said a few things here. First of all, in polite company, people of the 19th century would typically be more formal and would call people Mr., especially when they're higher up the social ladder. Michelle said, we do see that in this chapter. Working-class Maggot calls Frodo, who's a wealthy aristocrat, Mr. Baggins. That's true. And Maggot actually initially calls Pippin, another wealthy aristocrat, Master Pippin, but then corrects himself to say, Mr. Peregrine Took, I should say. Now, that's mm-hmm. an indicator of what we already know, that Maggot's known Pippin for a long time and has had contact with him since he was a child. But now he's suddenly realizing and acknowledging that Pippin is a, a grown man, well, a grown man hobbit. Um, but he, he still calls him <laughs> Mr. Peregrine, the use of the first name indicating, you know, a lot greater familiarity with Pippin than he has with Mr. Baggins. Mm-hmm. Now, Michelle's thought on it is that Mrs. Maggot probably calls her husband Mr. Maggot in front of the farmhands. But in front of the upper class Frodo and Pippin, she doesn't want to do that because they're higher up the social chain than he uh, is. Yeah. So yeah. she drops the Mr. and calls him simply Maggot. That's interesting. But Michelle adds one more thing. She says that the reason Maggot doesn't address Sam may not be intended as a snub. He may simply not know Sam well enough to know his social position. And so to avoid a, a faux pas, which, well, we clearly don't avoid those. Um, Maggot just avoids addressing them altogether instead. We seem to court faux pas occasionally. Yes, we um, do. But, Come uh, here, little faux pas. Aren't you so cute? <laughs> yeah, right. That's about uh, it. Offering him candy. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's an interesting and a, a well-thought-out response. Thank you, Michelle, for that. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to say, I'm still not sure about that last point regarding Sam. I, I still think there's a snub there. and Yeah. I don't know. I would think Sam's clothes must mark him out as, you know, a member of the working class, a gardener. Probably, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, aside from that that little point, which I might kind of go back and forth on, a lot of this makes sense to me. Alan, what do mm-hmm. you think? Oh, I agree. Uh, well, well, first, the sheer number of corrections or explanations was pretty overwhelming, um, <laughs> which makes this just another example of why we need to be careful with assumptions based on personal experience. Uh, <laughs> hey, it's going, it's my applicability regarding the there text. You go. Come on. That's right. It's applicability, <laughs> man. Personal, personal. Yeah, exactly. But like you said, look, calling somebody by their surname, that is very common, uh, but it's typically among men. And from my experience, it's typically younger men. In college, that's what we did yeah. all the time. Absolutely. You know, yeah. That's always that's last I got names. Out of it. Yeah. Um, 
But Michelle's explanation about the class distinctions is really interesting, and I think pretty likely explanative. Uh, Like you, I don't buy the excuse for the way Maggot treated Sam, though. Uh, We don't get the details, but we learn from the text that Pippin introduced the other two to the farmer. And since his introduction of Frodo included some details, it seems reasonable to assume that his introduction of Sam was at least enough to establish his social position, say, as the servant of Frodo or the servant Mm. of Mr. Baggins. Yeah, yeah. I think that was definitely, definitely a snub. Uh, I still think it was a snub, too. Yeah, yeah. of course it was. He doesn't like Hobbiton folk. So, right. Anyway, we've got another question. Uh, This one from Don S. writing to us from Between the Mountains and the Sea. He says, who wrote the ring verse? If Sauron, why is it written from the elvish perspective? If by some elf, then there was a time prior to the verse's composition when the ruling ring was unengraved. And then Sauron heard the verse, thought it was cool, and, I don't know, took the ring down to the mall to have it engraved? (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah. (laughs) But it had to be the mall of Mount Doom because the other Zales don't have the ability to engrave the one ring. Oh, <laughs> come on. We know Sauron went to Jared. Oh, oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Well, Don wrote back later saying he'd come up with a possible answer. He says, it almost feels like the ring verse is an amalgam of the ring inscription, which feels like a Sauron made spell added to an elvish bit of lore that explains the rings. Well, Sean, what do you think? I think Don's possible answer is the right one. And that's yeah. where I was headed myself before he wrote back to us the second time. Uh, Give us Sauron, time, man. We would have gotten it for you. <laughs> we would have gotten it for you. But thank you for giving us the answer, yeah. Don. Uh, absolutely right. Sauron absolutely. wrote the two lines that are actually engraved on the ring in the black speech. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, bind them. You know the words, folks. Now, Gandalf says at the Council of Elrond that these were words that the smiths of Eregion heard and knew that they had been betrayed. So, yes, Sauron wrote those words and the elves Mm -hmm. heard them. And then what they must have done is they wrote the ring verse then to preserve the lore of that betrayal and to warn future generations. And that's why they put those two lines that Sauron composed, the two lines that are actually on the ring. That's why they put those into the poem. It's it's a way Mm -hmm. of helping future generations identify the one ring in case, you know, other memories of what that inscription actually means might be lost over time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, that really does seem like the most reasonable explanation to me, certainly. Um, so kudos, Don. Good yeah. answer. Thank you, Don. I think we have time for one more, don't we? Yeah, I think we do. So Darren G. wrote in to ask, I noticed that almost every single transition, and he's talking about transitions of ownership of the One Ring, mm-hmm. is accompanied by an act of violence. The two peaceable transfers I can think of are from Bilbo to Frodo, with the help of Gandalf, Mm -hmm. and from Sam back to Frodo, after Shelob. Were there other peaceful transfers? Gollum to Bilbo wasn't that violent, but it still left Gollum wanting to kill Bilbo. True. Very true. true. And then the second part of this question, it says, It seems to me that the transfer from Bilbo to Frodo was really quite remarkable, as he had the ring for a long time, Bilbo, of course, and -hmm. gave it up pretty easily. What can be said of those ring bearers who had the ring for long enough for it to have an effect on them, but were still capable enough to let it go? And what does that tell us about the characters themselves who gave Mm. up the ring peaceably? Yeah. And now I have a third question, Darren says. Was Frodo the only recipient of peaceful transfers of the ring? And what does this tell us about Frodo? Ooh. Alan, what do you got? Well, yeah. Frodo was the only person that we know of throughout history to receive the one ring through someone actually giving it to him peacefully. He didn't have to steal it or murder anyone or cut it off somebody's finger, which are the three transfers before him. 
Mm-hmm. Does this tell us something about Bilbo and Sam, the two hobbits who peacefully gave the ring to Frodo? Yeah, I think it does. Uh, we've mentioned mm-hmm. before how, how utterly remarkable it is that Bilbo had the ring for so long and yet could still willingly give it up. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the fact that he's the first person in the history of the ring to be able to give it up of his own volition and how strong he is to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, Sam, even though he's not going to have the ring for very long when he does get it later in the story, he happens to be in possession of it on the borders of Mordor, very close to the center of the ring's power. The ring must have had an intense hold on Bilbo due to the amount of time that he had it, though I know that's a lot less than the amount of time Gollum had it. Sure, yeah. But the ring must also have had an intense hold on Sam due to where he had it. And you remember the visions that he had about, you know, this this ruling. Yeah, Samwise the, the Strong. And Samwise all that. Yeah. the Strong, right, hero of mm-hmm. the age. Um, mm-hmm. But he was able to give it to Frodo when the time came. Again, it wasn't easy, but he did it. So, yeah, it was a, a tremendous effort, a huge victory for both of them that they were able to do that. Uh, we've talked about the fact that there are some surprising parallels between Bilbo and Sam, and I know that we'll continue to talk about those and point them out as the story goes on. Yeah, yeah, that's that's all true. I agree. I do love the last question, too, though, about what this tells us about Frodo. I wonder... Is there something about Frodo that makes it easier for people to give him the ring than anyone else? Mm. Now, I suppose yeah. one could argue that if that's true, that diminishes the great feat of willpower that Bilbo and Sam achieved to give the ring to Frodo. But hmm. I don't I don't think it does. No. I think I think there could be something about Frodo that makes it possible to give him the ring willingly. I couldn't say what that is, but maybe it's something in the music. It's his or, big doughy eyes. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm compelled always, to give you my the ring. Always with the eyes. I just I look into those I'm eyes sorry. and I see <laughs> I, a face I can trust. There you go. But no, sorry I think it's probably that. something that's quite all right. <laughs> but I suspect it's either something in the music or it's something yeah, about the fact yeah, yeah. that Frodo was meant to have the ring. That's exactly As right, Bilbo yeah. was meant to find it. I think that's really the key. Mm-hmm. Maybe because Frodo is meant to have it, the natural course of the music works in some indescribable way so that mm-hmm. the ring does find its way to him more easily than it would find its way to someone else. True. I mean, it's not something that I think we could explain how or why it works, just that it's meant to work. It's kind of the, mm-hmm. the same way that Baron is able to touch the Silmaril, despite the fact that mortal flesh is not supposed to be able to touch the Silmarils. True, true. Um, and a, a hat tip to listener Arthur H. for that one, for asking uh-huh. me a question about Baron and the Silmaril not too long ago, which was unrelated to this one. But it, again, it just kind of reminded me of the story, right, when I was uh, preparing for this discussion. And did it have an awful pun? It did, Cause, yeah, because oh, okay, Arthur is so good so at those. Yeah, okay, sure I was it concerned it might have been an imposter if it didn't have a terrible pun. <laughs> no, it was, definitely, <laughs> it was definitely Arthur. Oh, man. But even if Frodo is meant to have the ring and that helps things fall into place so that he gets it, uh-huh. I still don't think that that diminishes what Bilbo and Sam do because right. as we've talked about before, you know, fate, providence, et cetera, are at work in the world, but but it's not enough. Individuals mm-hmm. have to exercise free will in order to make something happen, even if it's fated to happen or meant to happen as part of Iluvatar's plan. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we, we have this tendency to view events as being either fate or free will. Uh, you know, is it A, fate, or is it B, mm-hmm. free will? And the answer is yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, we have to, it, it, it's <laughs> right, hard to exactly. get comfortable with that because it's not even exactly. C, both of the above. It, it's like an answer that doesn't make sense. Um, But really, so often it really is a combination of both fate and free will, even though Mm -hmm. I understand that doesn't fit into our thinking very clearly. uh, I do think you're right that that's 
that that doesn't lessen, doesn't diminish what Bilbo and Sam do, even if mm -hmm. the music supposedly fates the ring to go to Frodo. Yeah. Uh, because it yeah. can still only happen by their free will. Right. They yeah. still have to give it up. They still have to willingly give it up. That's even right. though Frodo might be, you know, predisposed to be easy, an easy guy to give it to, you know? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Now, please be sure to join us again next week when we boldly face the mystery of Tom Bombadil and say, hmm, not yet. <laughs> well done. That's right, folks. Just like brave, 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 brave Sir Robin will bravely <laughs> run away from the Tom conundrum this time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but folks, thanks again for listening. And thank yeah. you for making our common room on Facebook such a fun place to spend time. We want all of you to be a part of this conversation. And it doesn't stop when the episode ends. See the comments, questions, corrections, and more on Facebook at The Prancing Pony Podcast. On Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod, and on Instagram at Prancing Pony Pod. And a very special thank you to our patrons at the Kierdance Contribution Tier, Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamsin in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, and Chad in Texas. Thank you all. Make sure you don't miss any episodes of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and most of all, your best bonfire barbecue recipes to Barlaman at theprancingponypodcast.com. <laughs> well, we'll try to get them into our next show. Shh, don't tell the trees. Um, well, however Pork long we've had... ribs with the fireweed sauce is all I'm thinking about. Fireweed <laughs> sauce, I love it. Well, however long we've had, it's still far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time... Farewell, friends. 